All right, we're going to jump into Nahum here. Thus far in this short book of Nahum, we've been given a picture of God as jealous and avenging. On the other side of the coin, God has also been shown to be slow to anger and good. And in both of these realities, Nahum also states that God is great and power, great in power. Okay, now this is bad news for Nineveh and Assyria because God has made it clear to them that he is against them. God is against the Assyrians. And what this means for Nineveh is they are going to be destroyed. The ways in which they have plundered their enemies is how God is going to plunder them. He is going to engage them in battle and demonstrate his strength and their weakness. So much so that they, as a civilization, as a nation, will have their name cut off. And in all of this, God will rescue his people. He is taking up their fight. He is fighting for them. Now, <clears throat> part of the gripe against the seemingly angry God we sometimes see in the Old Testament is that he seems impatient and maybe excessive in how he hands out justice. And I think people would say that when they read this chapter or maybe the whole book of Nahum. God is just a bit unreasonable. If you felt that before, or maybe you felt that in this series, what Nahum is going to do this morning is he's going to provide for us the reason why God is described as avenging and wrathful. So let's read together Nahum 3. Uh, we're going to read the first seven verses. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Okay. The first word of chapter 3 should grab our attention here. This is not a word that carries the appropriate weight in the English language. When we hear woe, we think of something that causes sadness. It's an expression of feeling for us today. Biblically, though, the meaning of this word is much weightier. A woe is a judgment. It describes a grievous situation that will oftentimes result in tragedy, or it provides a dreadful warning against some people. Uh, so what's being communicated here, and I, I read this in one of the books that I'm utilizing for this series, 
It says, the time has come for Nineveh to face divine reckoning for its wickedness before the God of the universe. This is what is being communicated through the woe that is being pronounced over Nineveh and Assyria. Now, this, woes are not just an Old Testament thing. One of the, one of the most well-known sections of woe is found in Matthew 23. And if you've ever wondered why Jesus never spoke with strong words, you probably haven't read these verses in Matthew 23. So what I want to do uh, is I want to read uh, just a couple of woes from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. But what should be really clear is that Jesus had had it up to here with these religious people. He he was not okay with the way in which they were living and thinking and feeling and believing. Okay, I wanted to read this right now, but we're going to come back to this in just a little bit. First, I want to talk about Nineveh, and then I'm going to tie Nineveh into these woes that Jesus pronounced. So Nahum begins by pronouncing woe, but then he moves to answer the why, why he is pronouncing this woe and why God is going to cut off Assyria and to destroy this nation. So first of all, we read in verse one, it is because this is a bloody city, okay? The things that they have done have shed much blood. And then we read in verse three, it says, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Okay, so this is speaking to the result of the wars that Nineveh has fought. It has caused their city to be filled with heaps of corpses, with dead bodies without end, to the point that people are stumbling over the body. So the imagery here is that of a city that has dead bodies stacked on top of each other throughout the city. Okay, so, so this, this is the picture that Nahum is seeking to paint for us. Now, what we need to understand about Nineveh is that Nineveh was known as an exceedingly wealthy city. They were what we would call cosmopolitan, or they were hip. They were very progressive. It was a trade capital, so they had to prepare for many visitors who would come to them that would get their goods, that would come and visit this city. So no doubt, they wanted their city to look good for people who were passing through the city. And this is one of the reasons that they constructed so many parks and so many gardens. And Nineveh was known for these beautiful realities that people would come and they would enjoy in Nineveh. Also, the king had his palace here and he wanted all people to see his success by having a palace that could not be rivaled. So there's the fact that Nineveh wanted to give the impression that they were wealthy 
that they were happy. But behind this facade of wealth and happiness was nauseating brutality. And at times, Nineveh would want to let people know about this reality. But, so, I, I think I remember back in the, um, when we were going through the book of Jonah, I think I mentioned in that uh, series, at times they would, like, put the heads of their enemies on the city wall, and they would display those, almost as a reminder to people, stay in line, uh, or else this is what's going to happen. But, but really, Nineveh made itself out to be successful. They did look good and progressive. It was a beautiful city. But it would be very much in line. What Nineveh was would be very much in line with what Jesus described regarding the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees in his own day. They were like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In a culture like ours that is so fixated on the outward appearance, we need to hear the repeated biblical calls regarding the foolishness of emphasizing the external and the outward, the surface level. God isn't primarily concerned with us achieving a certain body type or in us being able to project a really successful image on social media. That, that's not what God is looking for at all. He looks at our hearts. When Israel was looking for a new king, this is what God said. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is true in so many ways. Jesus speaks about how hatred in one's heart is the equivalent of murder. So, so we might make ourselves feel good that we're not literally killing somebody, but in our hearts we'll still get really angry at people and, and think that it's okay to do that because we're not actually killing someone, but Jesus equates these realities. In an effort to help us in this whole dynamic of getting below the surface and not just focusing on the external, Jesus created the church. And a big part of the church, God's design in the church, is that people would be in deep relationship with one another, with the people in their local church community. And so this is why at Center Church, we hold up as one of our core values that of community. It's not because we don't have community as a core value because uh, we want to appear to people that we care about others. Okay, we're, we're not going just for the appearance of caring about others. We want to actually care about others. We want that to be embodied in the way that we live our lives. We want to live out the value of sacrificially loving one another, not merely when it's easy, not merely when it's convenient, but always. We want to give of ourselves because this is what Jesus has done and continues to do 
for us. When we are known deeply and we are in deep relationship with other people, we will be forced to engage in conversations that don't just deal with surface issues, that get down below into our hearts where God really wants to work. And so it's not just dealing with the surface, which is oftentimes the what, okay? We don't want to just deal with the what, we want to deal with the why. And that's what living in biblical community will compel us to do, to get to the heart level, to answer the why question. Why are you angry? Why did you do that thing, make that choice? Why did you not speak up in that certain situation? Why did you respond in that way? And, and then for us to get to the point of talking about why we hurt, why we fear certain things, why we're anxious about a certain circumstance in our lives. Part of what's being communicated here is that the surface appearance is rarely reliable. And, and we struggle to get beyond this reality. We, we still, over and over, we see one thing and we think that's the whole truth. There's always so much more to the picture. So, so we struggle to move beyond the fact that there's more than just the surface appearance. But I, I think we also struggle with the picture of God that we're getting here in these verses as well. So uh, when we hear that God is avenging and wrathful. Our first impulse should not be to think that God is unreasonable or that he improperly uses his power. Our first impulse in this dynamic, when we read about God reacting in this way, should be Nineveh must be really wicked. Nineveh must have sinned grievously and and they did like they would take their enemies and and they would actually rip the tongues out of their mouths that they would take women and children and they would burn them alive they would capture their enemies alive and then they would force these people to parade around the city while holding sticks with their loved ones heads on them. And the list could go on and on. So, so I don't say these things uh, to, to gross you out. I want you to understand God is reacting in this way for a very specific reason. Nineveh has sinned greatly. It's not just like, oh, they offended God in this little way. No. Their sin is grievous, and God is coming at Nineveh with vengeance because of their great sin and their sin against his creation. And so this is why God is pronouncing woe over them. I think understanding context is so helpful. This has been put on display, I think, repeatedly throughout this political season as well. People have many opinions that we are quick 
to express, or, or we are quick to make judgments about what others say. So, so often people hold a certain position because of something they've experienced in life. And I just think it's so important for us as gospel people that when we see people lashing out in certain ways, when we, when we hear people saying things that maybe we think are a little over the top or just on the other side of the spectrum or we strongly disagree, one of the best things we can do is to understand why. Why does someone hold that position? Why do they feel so strongly? What have they experienced that causes them to react in this way? And usually there is something, something very hurtful that has happened in their lives, some or maybe some of their own sin um, that has occurred in their lives. And so part of what I want us to hear in all of this is that the gospel compels us to go deep, not just to live on the surface. It moves us to go deep. All right, Nahum then continues, and he says that all of this bloodshed has been for a very foolish reason. And he uses the imagery here of a prostitute, okay? So a prostitute is essentially uh, a charming woman who uses her beauty to betray others. Charming woman who is using her beauty to betray others. But ultimately, this is a betrayal of herself as well. Nineveh's flaunting of their strength and glory is going to result in them being exposed. The, the selling of themselves as a nation for monetary gain or for military gain is not going to prove to be durable or satisfying. God, again, we read here in verse 5, God says, I am against you. I am against you. And as Nahum is talking about the prostitute here, God being against Nineveh is going to have revealing results for Nineveh. So as a prostitute seeks to reveal enough of themselves to entice, God says, he will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So God is going to put on full display for the world to see the foolishness of Nineveh. Now, it's important for us to understand the persistent rebellious violence of Nineveh. Because I think when we, when we read this kind of stuff, again, we can so quickly go back to, man, it just seems a little uh, too much for God to do this kind of thing. But remember, God had sent his prophet Jonah to Nineveh, okay? He had sent Jonah to these people who were rebelling against him, who were hurting his people, and he called them to repentance. So, despite Nineveh initially turning from their sin, they quickly go back to what they've always done. The language here, as it talks about a prostitute, is dramatic to emphasize the horror of Nineveh's sin. And I think we should, when we hear this talk of nakedness, it should also cause us to think of 
the Garden of Eden. It should cause us to go back to Adam and Eve, what happened with them. So when they sinned, what did they realize? They realized that they were naked, right? So their sin led them to see that they were naked. And when they uh, found themselves to be naked, they felt ashamed, okay? Adam and Eve felt, felt ashamed. And God's response, you remember what God's response was in this? He, de- he clearly addressed their sin, but God's response also included him covering them, okay? He gave them something to be covered. So notice how God's response to sin is grace. God's initial response to sin is grace. We see that also here with Nineveh. He sends a prophet to them, and he calls them to repent. So his initial response to sin is grace, but persistent sin is punished. So we can't look at this scenario. We can't look at God talking about Nineveh like a prostitute and say, man, God is unreasonable. Not at all. God has been unbelievably patient with them. I think maybe many people would even say he's been too patient towards them. All right, now, when we think about prostitutes, um, Jesus gives us a number of examples in the New Testament as he encounters individuals who are prostitute-like, okay? So in one instance, a woman is about to be sent or stoned for her sexual indiscretion, okay? In that moment, Jesus steps in and in a sense is a covering for her. He draws near to this woman, not to use this woman, not to abuse this woman. This is a whole other side of this conversation, okay? We're looking at this from the sin of the prostitute, but there's this whole other part of this dynamic of those who use the prostitute, okay? And they are just as guilty, if not more, as well. But Jesus does not draw near to this prostitute to use or abuse, but to save her, to cover her. In another instance, Jesus approaches a woman. Uh, Many of you maybe have heard this story, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus approaches this woman who is considered dirty and unworthy. And he shares with her what eternal life is all about. And then also shares what is keeping her from what she is longing for. She is running after men, thinking that is where life is found. And so Jesus communicates to her where true life is found. God's desire is to save us from our shame. And every single person, all of us, have experienced shame in our lives. This is something I look for in my kids. As I'm parenting, what All of my kids have these things they do when they feel shame. And immediately, I just want to tell them, buddy, honey, daddy loves you. I am not saying what I'm saying to make you feel bad. I am loving you. And so often I just go and I'll give them 
a hug. And even in that, they'll oftentimes shrink back because they feel the shame. Every single one of us has felt this. And God makes it really clear over and over. He wants to save us from that. He takes that upon himself. But if we continually reject his gracious offers and persist in our sin, the Bible also talks about how God eventually does give us over to our sin as well. One of the most terrifying realities that we read in the Bible. Okay, so as Nahum is writing about the prostitute, the depiction we get of Nineveh here is that of betrayal. They have chased after something. In their case, riches and pleasure. They have chased after riches and pleasure. And these things cannot return their love. They have shown affection for these things. And those things cannot give back to them what they are giving to them. And in this, they have played the fool. In their efforts to make life meaningful by displaying their power and by consuming many things, they now find themselves in a spot that is filled with shame. They are naked and exposed. They are alone. We read here that they have become a spectacle. And the person who has depended on the fear of their enemies to give them fullness will eventually long for those same people that they oppress to now feel sorry for them when their fortunes turn. But again, disappointment is going to await them because we read here in verse 7 that there is no one who will grieve for Nineveh. There is no one who will comfort them. Nineveh is wasted. This is the bed that Nineveh has made, and this is the bed they now get to sleep and ultimately die in as a city and as a nation. Okay, a bit ago I read a verse uh, where Jesus was pronouncing woes on religious folk. Okay, so I want to go back to one of these right now. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So we live in a country and in a culture that is very similar to what we read in Nineveh, or read about in Nineveh. And we are very much in danger of repeating the error of trying to look acceptable on the outside, but being full of greed and self-indulgence on the inside. So I just wanted to take just a moment here to try and pastor you well. So I want to ask you in this moment right now to wrestle with what I'm about to say, but not just here. This week, I, I want to encourage you with a, a roommate, with a friend, with a spouse, with a sibling. I want to ask you to wrestle with these things. And, and there will also be opportunity in your community groups as well. I want to ask you to wrestle with this. The reality is this is sneaky. 
this emphasis on the external is a sneaky, sneaky thing. We will make unending excuses for ourselves. What we will do is we will focus on the faults of others rather than really wrestling with what's going on in our own hearts. And, more, and so we are self-indulgent people. When you read this, Jesus saying this, I hope that you think of yourself first. We are self-indulgent people. That is who we are. More than we are willing to admit or we want to admit, we like nice things. I like nice things, okay? We do like nice things. We love our families more than Jesus. We love our families more than Jesus. When we sacrifice for others, we oftentimes feel like they owe us. Like someone owes us something. We will fight hard. We will expend energy. And we will incur cost for many things in life. But we will lose our excitement and our drive when it comes to Jesus and his church. So I'm asking you to wrestle with these realities. This is who we are. And this is what we do. And I think all of us are complicit in some way. So why? Why do we do these things? It's because we fail to see the beauty of the gospel. So I, I try to be really clear. When I talk about these kinds of things, I want to speak plainly. I want to speak directly. But my intention is never to guilt you. Okay? I, I am not trying to make you feel bad. I am trying to love you by raising to the surface some of these things that we like to press down deep into our hearts, okay? So don't walk out of here think, thinking, or don't turn off your computer thinking, Kevin's just trying to make us feel bad. I'm trying to get you to wrestle with the deep, dark corners of our hearts. Okay, so I have one point of gospel application for us this morning. And that is the gospel is beautiful. The gospel is beautiful through and through. And one of the ways that this is true is how multifaceted the gospel is. Okay? The gospel is multifaceted. And we get a great example of this in these verses. Okay? We are told of Nineveh. Listen to this. Nineveh is a bloody city. Nineveh was guilty of lies, of plunder, and of murder. But now, we are seeing them covered in shame because of these realities. The things they gloried in are now causing them to be covered in shame. What they trusted in and what they ran after could not hold up for them. And now, they are like a lover who gave up everything only to be left high and dry. They look silly. It's like an extravagant marriage proposal at the Eiffel Tower turning into a joke. Nineveh has become a spectacle. So this is what we're reading about in Nahum. 
okay? This is the dark background behind the beautiful, light-filled foreground of the gospel. So listen to this. This is how we see Jesus in these verses. Jesus was made a spectacle. Jesus was scorned. Jesus was scoffed at. Jesus was laughed at. Jesus was made naked. Jesus was bloodied. He was plundered by his enemies. He was murdered. People lied about him. He was treated with contempt his whole life. Those closest to him shrunk shrunk back from him. And he did this. He did all of this because of love. Okay? He took God's wrath, God's vengeance upon himself because he loved us, because he loved sinners. And so we read in Colossians 2.15, by doing this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So my call and my plea for us this morning is that we would be captivated by this Jesus. This is the most beautiful story this world has ever heard. Look at his love, look at his sacrifice, and trust him. Sin cloaks itself in beauty, but it cannot deliver on the promises that it it makes to us. It will lead to devastation, but Jesus, conversely, was devastated so that we might become whole, so that we might become beautiful in the sense of displaying his love to others.